Conversations. Good day, everybody. This is uh, Med Conversations, and you are sitting here back, Davo and Rahul. Yep, 2020 is upon us. Did you yeah. make some resolutions? Have you broken those resolutions already? <laughs> Davo made one resolution to make only neurology podcasts, and That's so right. far, yeah, yeah. he's killing it. <laughs> <laughs> I have made a neurology podcast. <laughs> And I've uh, enlisted the help of Rahul to kind of hold me back. And Once again, I think me. I'm the hapless rube here. Who's just, <laughs> he hasn't put the answers to anything on this slide. He's just going to ask me bucket questions on it. I to make him look, uh, look dumb. Yeah, this is the revenge of the nerds, right? weird thing is I kind of like it. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so we're talking about polyneuropathy. One of the many fascinating topics in neurology. Just so many, of them. so many fascinating topics. <laughs> They're all great. Um, this will be at least seven hours uh, <laughs> if it were up to me. But right, that's what Rahul's here for. So we'll try and cut it down a little bit. Maybe the six pain. At the, I, can't, I don't see it's going any faster than that, but we'll see what happens. <laughs> so polyneuropathy. So just to take you through. So the first thing we're going to talk about is how you arrive at the idea that someone might have a polyneuropathy or a peripheral neuropathy peripheral neuropathy yeah, yeah. Um, and then the next thing we'll talk about is once you've got a polyneuropathy how do you nail down what type of polyneuropathy it is exactly um, and then after that we'll talk about what the different causes of polyneuropathy are and then finally we're going to take take our new knowledge for a bit of a test drive yeah with some cases so ultimately this is a it's like driving a a sleek Ferrari, you know, when you get this neurology knowledge. <laughs> That's what it feels like. Uh, ultimately, this is about how do you diagnose someone who comes in with peripheral neuropathy type pattern. Mm. So there's 200 causes of polyneuropathy and mm. you want to you wanna figure out which one it is. You don't want to be sending off 200 tests. Uh, we'll be going through each one individually, of course. Yeah. <laughs> how would you know? the seven hours. <laughs> each. <laughs> Okay, right. so Davo, what does someone present with when they present with a peripheral neuropathy? No, we're not talking about that yet. All right. We're talking about... <laughs> <laughs> I'm driving the car here, right? Sorry, this is your Ferrari. <laughs> Take it off you. Uh, so the first thing I want to talk about is how you arrive at the point of thinking this person has a polyneuropathy, right? That's nice. what we're talking about. Yep. Um, so to take it back a step, when someone arrives with weakness or loss of sensation, which is what a lot of neurology patients present with, you've got to be thinking, where is a lesion? What is a lesion? That's the mantra of uh, your neurology thinking. Mm. Where is a lesion and what is the lesion? Yeah. So first, let's talk about where is a lesion because we want to narrow it down to polyneuropathy so we can get through the meat of this wonderful podcast. <laughs> so where is a lesion? So if you, if you really don't know, just based on the overall pattern, it's always worth thinking through systematically. So you go through the daisy chain of uh, the nervous system, which starts with the brain. Mm. What's the brain connected to? The wristwatch, if I remember correctly. <laughs> Brain's connected to the spinal cord. Okay. And then, and then you've got the junction of the central and uh, peripheral nervous system. So for the motor, that's the anterior horn cell. And for, sen- for the sensory system, it's the sensory neuron. So there's a little connect, there's a, a nerve that runs all the way from your cortex in the brain down your spinal cord and then at the anterior horn cell, which is just as you're exiting the spinal mm. cord, there's another nerve that connects to that and that's the differentiation between upper and motor, upper motor neuron and lower motor neuron. And for sensory, it, for between the difference between central and periphery is basically the same thing, cortical neuron that runs all the way down the spinal cord but then connects to a sensory peripheral neuron. That's so right. when yeah. someone says they have a peripheral neuropathy, they're talking about conditions that occur after that anterior horn cell or after 
that sensory neuron mm. synapses with the spinal cord. And like, likewise for upper motor neuron and lower motor neuron. So if it's, if it's upper motor neuron, if it affects uh, your brain or your spinal cord, uh, and if it's a lower motor neuron, if it's nerve root onwards. And the anterior horn, so is the junction between the two, which is why motor neuron disease, you get both upper motor neuron and lower motor neuron stuff. Just ignore that. <laughs> um, so, so after you go through the anterior horn cell or the sensory synapse, then Dave, or where do you where does the nerve go from? So there? it goes then it's nerve root, uh, and then after that it's brachial plexus. You probably remember drawing out the brachial plexus. That's and only if it's an upper upper limb nerve. Or yep, yeah, sorry, a lumbosacral plexus, so mm. plexus, mm. Uh, and then after that peripheral nerve. So that'll be like your radial nerve or your median nerve, whatever nerve it is. And then for motor stuff, it then goes a bit further. Sensory stuff ends at the nerve, but motor stuff goes a little bit further to neuromuscular junction, and then after that, muscle. So just go through that daisy chain again, Rahul. Take us through because... So you start off up in the cortex with a, a little cortical neuron, and that runs down through the brain, through the spinal cord, down to, in the motor neuron, it runs to the anterior horn cell. In the sensory neuron, it runs to the sensory synapse. Mm-hmm. And from there, it comes out as a nerve root. And then it goes into a plexus of some variety and then becomes a peripheral single nerve, like your sciatic nerve or your radial nerve. And then if it's a mus- if it's a motor neuron, it goes to the muscle. And that junction where the nerve and the muscle meet is called the neuromuscular junction. Mm. And if it's a sensory neuron, it just continues until it reaches wherever it's picking up sensation from. Yeah, good. Um so yeah, whenever whenever you've got a patient with uh, weakness <clears throat> or loss of sensation, it's always worth thinking through that pattern, especially if you don't know what's going on. Because it's a really good kind of scaffold to think about where this lesion is exactly. Mm. And then once you've narrowed down where the lesion, uh, you know, each of those different parts of the neurological system have are more likely to be attacked by different pathologies. So yeah, that's how they you kind of have their own diseases, you know. Yeah. So we always think where first and then once you've localized it, we think, okay, what's likely to be affecting the anterior horn cell? Mm. All right. So we've done that. So then if we use that process, how do we arrive at the point of thinking this is probably a polyneuropathy, which is what this podcast is about? Yeah, a peripheral or a polyneuropathy. I guess the first question is, is it a central or peripheral process? So is mm. it upper motor, if it's a motor one, is it upper motor neuron or lower motor neuron? Mm. If it's sensory, is it sort of spinal cord or above or is it something outside of there? And then yeah. I'll tell you. So, so we, we tend to use upper motor neuron or lower motor neuron to primarily differentiate central from peripheral. Mm. Um, so what are the signs of like an upper motor neuron lesion? So if someone's got a weakness that you think is upper motor neuron, what would you be expecting to see? Yeah, so I would be expecting to see increased reflexes, mm. potentially increased tone. Mm. Uh, and then you can get other patterns like pyramidal weakness where the extensors are weaker than the flexors. Yeah, and then uh, so your patient doesn't have that. They've actually got some lower motor neuron signs. So they've got some wasting. They might have some fasciculations. And they may have loss of reflexes mm. and uh, kind of low tone. So mm. thinking this person has lower motor neurons. So and, and they may have a pattern of weakness that fits to an obvious nerve, like the radial nerve pattern yeah. of weakness. Yeah. yeah, yeah. All right, so we, we figured out it's lower motor neurons. So we know it's in that second half of, uh, of that daisy oh, chain. Oh, and importantly, so 
that's for motor neurons, but for sensory, if you're trying to work out whether something sensory is central or peripheral, you know, if it's in the spinal cord, you'll have a sensory level where they have a loss of sensation up until a certain point and then sensation returns. Mm-mm. And that can be a helpful hint. Yeah. And uh, often if it's in the brain, it's kind of hemisensory, like half of the body is, mm. is affected. Um, and often they'll have face involvement as well as limb involvement. Mm. Um, but we usually use kind of motor to distinguish between peripheral and central. But anyway, so we, we figured out that it's peripheral. Um, it's in the second half of the daisy chain. It's after um, the anterior horn cell slash sensory neuron. So then the next question is, uh, is it nerve or is it muscle slash neuromuscular junction? Um, so what's what's the number one question to, uh, to figure that out? Yeah, so if it's going to be predominantly a muscle or neuromuscular junction problem, you usually don't have issues with sensation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So their sensory signs will be preserved, but they might just be weak or fatigable of some variety. Like all things in neurology, there's a caveat to that. You can have a peripheral nerve problem that's just motor. Mm. Um, but if it's just motor, you, you, you first think kind of muscle neuromuscular junction. All right, so we figured out it's nerve. So how do we know that it's a polyneuropathy then? Well, is it just affecting a single nerve? Polyneuropathy just means multiple nerves affected, a multiple nerve problem. So is it mm. affecting a single nerve or is it affecting... Multiple nerves, yeah, yeah. Or is it a, could you explain it by a single brachial plexus lesion or a single nerve root lesion? Mm. Um, there's another way of thinking about it. So quickly revise that. So how do we arrive at the fact that this patient has a polyneuropathy? So first question is, is it lower, is it sorry, peripheral nervous system? So is it lower motor neuron? Uh, is it uh, involving sensation? So it's not uh, muscle or neuromuscular junction. Um, and is it explainable by a single peripheral lesion or, or do you need multiple? Now, the answer to all of that is uh, it's likely to be polyneuropathy. Listen on. Yeah, otherwise, <laughs> stop now. <laughs> and if you're in mental health, I'd probably encourage you to stop now as well. But I wish I could stop. <laughs> Can't. Uh, all right. So um, then the next thing is... Um, if we go back to that principle of where is the lesion and what is the lesion. So you know it's a polyneuropathy, you've, you've localized it that far, but you can actually localize it further because you can always localize it. <laughs> There's always another level of detail. Yes. It's never ending. It's a good job, honey, that has no... no um, so yeah, you can lo- you can make it more precise. So you can say... There's different types of polyneuropathy. Um, that localize Davo, can you put your pants back on? <laughs> It's a podcast. This is why everyone, he's got he's taking his items of clothing off right now and staring me dead in the eyes. This is why it's an audio format, right? <laughs> the audience doesn't need to know. I didn't agree to this. <laughs> Alright. Polyneuropathy. There's different types of polyneuropathy. Um, and you can localize the anatomy of the polyneuropathy better. So how do you do that? So there are some sp- oh, were you asking me? No. No, no. Okay, no, you no, got no. Why would I ask you? Rob? <laughs> but I will ask you. This, this question? This is not a question okay, that you're right. uh, So the first, the first thing you think about uh, with um, when you're trying to localize what type of polyneuropathy is, you think about it cl- clinically. So there's certain patterns that it can fit into. So the most common one is length-dependent. Um, another one is multifocal neuropathy. Another is polyradicular neuropathy or polyradiculopathy. Um, and the last one is neuronopathy. So there's kind of four main patterns, um, and we'll go through each of those in detail. So the most common one is length-dependent neuropathy. So if you're just guessing, just say length-dependent neuropathy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is, <laughs> you again, probably get through medical school. Good Bayesian reasoning. Yeah, yeah. Just 
Common things are common. Ma- vast majority of them are land dependent on your property. So what is it, what, this is a question for you. This is a Rahul level. <laughs> <laughs> what, is, uh, what is a land dependent on your property? What does that pattern look like? Uh, so that is your classic glove and stocking sensory loss pattern. Uh, and it's called length dependent because the longer the nerve is, the more likely it's been affected. And Davo, I don't know if you know this, but actually length dependent is commonly a problem with uh, transport proteins. And that's why it's length dependent. Yeah, I didn't know that because I wrote that down. <laughs> <laughs> in the, in the document, I, really oh, I, didn't, I didn't see that there. Yeah, he, he did know it, guys. Yeah. yeah. So that's, that's why uh, it's length dependent because... Nerves are like the longest cells in the body, um, and uh, they need a way of getting nutrients from their cell body all the way back down. So transport proteins do that. Um, And so if you've got a problem with the transport proteins, then you get this length-dependent pattern where the further away a bit of a nerve it is, the more affected it is by this process. Um, And it's also why length-dependent processes are usually affected by toxic or metabolic causes. Um, So they tend to be the kind of things that... Uh, that affect the distal nerve more than the proximal nerve. So yeah, this glove and stocking uh, distribution is is the classic buzzword that you might hear. So it's predominantly sensory. So they'll start off with some numbness in their feet and then that'll go up to kind of their mid-calf and then they might start getting some in their hands. Um, But uh, they'll often uh, often then develop motor changes if it becomes quite severe. So usually uh, that'll just present itself with kind of wasting of some intrinsic muscles. You you rarely be able to detect actual weakness on your exam. Um, And then you'll get some reflex changes and that's length dependent as well. Um, So you won't get your proximal... Uh, reflexes affected a bit more your distal reflexes so you might start with your ankles and then exactly so probably if ever you might go up to your knees yeah exactly mm-hmm. yeah yeah um, and so that's why older people just often don't have ankle reflexes because they've all got length dependent it's very common it's just part of getting older almost mm-hmm. um, and the other thing that's worth noting um, with a length dependent neuropathy um, that it doesn't just affect your large fibers which is your motor fibers and your uh proprioception fibers it actually predominantly affects your small fibers mm. uh, which is why they they get pain um, and why they get loss of uh, pain and temperature sensation as well so just to remind those of you who aren't budding neurologists out there small fiber neuropathy small fibers generally can uh, are responsible for autonomic nerves so your sort of non-voluntary re- reflexes and your pain and temperature sensation whereas mm. large fiber nerves are proprioception and vibration mm. sensation mm. so and motor motor nerves we'll talk about this more in a second but if it's small fiber symptoms often pain so diabetics that get pain at night that's because their small fibers are dying mm. um and uh and this kind of dizziness on standing erectile dysfunction urinary dysfunction gastroparesis that's all small fiber that's the autonomic stuff yeah yeah, so... so that was length-dependent. Well, length-dependent. So what's a prototypical cause of a length-dependent neuropathy? Classic is diabetic neuropathy. Yeah, yeah. All right, so pattern two, multifocal neuropathy. So what's the number one feature you look for when you're, you're trying to figure out whether someone has a multifocal neuropathy? So an asymmetrical distribution of nerve lesions or of weakness and sensation. Yeah. So both in time course and in presentation. Is, this, is there a difference between multifocal neuropathy Davo and mononeuritis multiplex? So mononeuritis multiplex is uh, a subtype of multifocal neuropathy. Okay. So mo- mo- uh, mononeuritis multiplex 
the itis in, in fact, uh, implies inflammation, right? And that's okay. most commonly vasculitis. So that's just up. multiple different single nerves that yeah. are inflamed, mononeuritis multiplex. And multifocal neuropathy is an example of that where you just have multiple lesions across. Mononeuritis multiplex is an example of multifocal neuropathy. That's what I said. What did you say? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, asymmetry is the key. So both in time and space. Um, so they might have one leg affected first um, and uh, they might have one leg more affected than the other leg. Mm. So it's why it's often, it's why time course as always is so important to go through in chronological order and what happened, what was the first thing that happened? Because if you just look at, often people with uh, multifocal neuropathy, by the time they arrived, it all just looks like a confluent mess. It just looks mm. length dependent. Mm. Uh, but if you go through carefully, you're like, actually that, that left leg was, was first and then you feel smart. Yeah. <laughs> The answer is always the same. Sorry, there's nothing we can do about your problem here, but I have diagnosed it. It's not the 50s anymore. It's not the 50s. If only it were. <laughs> so, yeah, you've already mentioned it. What's a typical example of a multifocal neuropathy? Vasculitis would be the example that comes to my mind. <laughs> Funny that. <laughs> All right. So then your third, uh, your third pattern is a polyradiculoneuropathy and a polyradiculopathy. Mm. So if you remember our daisy chain of the immune system... Of the nervous system. Yeah. What does radiculo mean? Root. Root. So, yeah. So that seems to imply that it's the nerve root or the nerve root plus... I got a good radiculo. Nerve. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I couldn't... I, in my mind, I didn't want to say it. And then I just ended up saying it. it's an impulse control problem. Yeah. Anyway. Um, I'm going to keep that in. I'm not going to edit it out. <laughs> Um, yeah, so you've got your polyradiculoneuropathy and polyradiculopathy. So radiculoneuropathy, what does that mean, do you think? So radiculoneuropathy? Or, mm. Yeah, so radiculoneuropathy means the root is involved, but also the nerve subsequent to the root. So all yeah. that peripheral, the plexus part and the, you know, the, the single nerve after that is all involved mm. as well. So a larger part of the daisy chain is involved. Mm. Um, and then polyradiculopathy, so that's... Just the root problem. Yeah, exactly. Do you get... I won't ask that question. On the <laughs> <laughs> Good impulse control. Yeah, yeah. Um, like that. Frontal lobe is waking up. <laughs> All right. So, as in, you can imagine. So, if you've got radicular involvement, um, rather than just this length-dependent pattern of more distal nerves, what's going to be a likely part of that presentation? <laughs> Sorry, I wasn't paying attention. <laughs> what did you say? <laughs> So if your radiculos are involved, if your nerve yeah. roots are involved in the pathology, it's not length dependent. It's not just distal nerves. Uh, uh, so you'd expect more proximal involvement. Exactly so you might have right. proximal muscle weakness. You might have proximal sensation loss. Mm -hmm. Just but stuff you, that's closer to the spinal cord. Exactly right. Yeah. yeah. Um, and typically, this is a symmetrical process, uh, a polyradiculoneuropathy. And uh, often, it involves the cranial nerves as well. But things that can involve the nerve roots often have something to do with the meninges because they're encased in meninges. And what else encases the meninges? The, the cranial nerves. Or the, sorry, the cranial nerves are also encased by the meninges. So mm. often these processes uh, affect cranial nerves as well. So that's an important differentiating factor. And they, they tend to be motor predominant for whatever reason. Hmm. So your prime example of a polyradicular neuropathy... Guillain-Barre syndrome. Guillain-Barre syndrome, mm. yeah. Which is why you get a high protein in the CSF, if, mm. if people know that. So um, just to, for those of you who don't know what Guillain-Barre, and we will go through a little bit later, but it's a inflammatory demyelinating polyneuropathy that affects the nerve roots. So, and the typical presentation is people come in after an illness of some variety, mm. usually campylobacterial diarrhea, and we'll get 
loss of... They get ascending motor weakness, essentially. Yeah, they do. Yeah, but they get early proximal involvement. Mm. I mean, that's a, a big differentiator with some of the other causes. Mm. Um, and uh, it's not just the nerve roots, it's also the, the nerves themselves. So the nerve root plus the nerves is your classic Guillain mm. Barre. And your classic example of just a polyradiculopathy with no nerve involvement. So some sort of you know spondyloarthropathy or the generative spinal, spine, yeah, disease, yeah, generative yeah, yeah. spine that's yeah. compressing on the nerve roots, but the yeah. rest of it yeah. is actually fine. Yeah. But does the rest of the nerve get affected as time goes on with Wallerian, with you know with a bit of degeneration of the whole nerve? Or yeah, it can do. It can do if it's really severe. Mm. Um, but this is really in the weeds, so do not let <laughs> <laughs> come back in a few seconds if you're already feeling overwhelmed. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so Wallerian degeneration and nerve roots. Um, affects motor but not sensory because the the cell body for the motor neurons is in the spinal cord itself to wind back a second Wallerian degeneration is when you get the <laughs> dying off of the nerve distal to where you have the lesion or the problem yeah and that's because the cell body which is like the nucleus yeah, the transport of, proteins are, yeah are so, messed up transport right? proteins. <laughs> so they can't deliver what they need to further down the cell because you've got some sort of block or some sort of problem there so like yeah. a you know so a classic example is if you cut uh a an, a nerve like a median nerve like in the middle of your forearm and everything past that will die of a kind of mm, um, transport and through. nutrients can't yeah, get down the right. cell down the axon yeah so if you use that principle so if you have a nerve root that's like actually cut and like completely messed up um Wallerian degeneration will ensure that the motor nerves um, uh, die off distally to that, but the sensory ones will actually be spared uh, because the cell body, as we said before, of the sensory neurons is outside of the spinal cord mm. and past where the nerve root is. And you can use this on, on uh, nerve connection studies to localize that it's primarily a nerve root problem because you have sensory sparing. Mm. Your motor nerves will be affected, but your sensation will be spared inside. This is probably actually mostly radiculopathy. That is super in the weeds. Yeah, this is just, not I medical. <laughs> I, I learned this last year. <laughs> <laughs> in his second year of neurology advanced training. So, yep. First year. I'm not an idiot. Oh, yeah. yeah, well, it's 2020, baby. Oh, yeah, I learned it 2018. Yeah, there you go. So maybe it is, maybe you should know this already. Um, (laughs) All right, we're back. We're back out of the weeds. We've come out of the jungle. Okay, fuck, where were we? Jesus. Um, (laughs) uh, So that was polyradiculoneuropathy and polyradiculopathy. Okay. We're kind of going back into the jungle now because this last pattern is also... (laughs) We love the jungle. (laughs) Take the boy out of the jungle. (laughs) Take the jungle out of the boy. Uh, this last pattern is also uh, probably not really medical student level, but it's a neuronopathy. So that's when just the just when the sensory uh, neuron cell body is affected. So it's kind of the opposite of what we were just talking about. We just get sensation affected um, and no motor involvement. So it's impossible for motor to be involved because there's no motor neurons in that thing. And some of you out there might be like, well, isn't that what happens when you get diabetes? You know, people present with a glove and stocking loss, but they don't have any overt weakness. It's like, no, there is some subtle, as Davo said, motor loss there in those ones. Um, you often can't detect it clinically. You can only mm. detect it on nerve connections or, mm. or EMG testing. But a neuronopathy is like really pure sensation. Like even if you do like really subtle 
testing on on electrophysiology and that's because it's just the sensory cell body that's affected yeah um, and they get really profound sensation affected so they completely lose their proprioception they often initially people think they're cerebellar like they just can't walk at they don't all. know where their limbs are in space because yeah. they lose that proprioception yeah. okay so those are the four easy to remember patterns we'll just go through <laughs> that one more time so length dependent neuropathy multifocal neuropathy polyridicular neuropathy slash polyridiculopathy and neuronopathy and just to give you a brief synopsis length dependent is your classic sort of glove and stocking type problem where the nerves die based on how long they are multifocal neuropathy is where you have multiple single nerves involved mm-hmm. polyridiculopathy slash radicular neuropathy is when you have a nerve root problem that may mm-hmm. or may not extend further down mm-hmm. and neuronopathy is the one that is just sensation is involved yeah and so using just clinically, you can figure out probably which part of the nervous, uh, which part of the uh, polyneuropathy is affected, like which part of the nerves are affected. Mm. But then you cart them off to electrophysiology testing, so nerve conduction studies and EMG, and you can localize it further. You can answer this question of where the lesion is further. Um, and so there's two things that you're thinking about primarily on um, nerve conduction studies. Uh, and so the first one is it large fiber or small fiber so we talked about this briefly before so what what does large fibers do so the large fiber are your motor uh, nerves as well as your proprioception and vibration so those dorsal column uh, sensory stuff yeah uh, and the small fiber on the other hand is autonomic nerves so mm-hmm. the things that are responsible for your involuntary reflexes mm-hmm. and the pain and temperature sensation mm-hmm. So a nerve conduction study can tell you which one of those yeah. fibers is preferentially affected. Yeah, yeah. And so what do you see? If it's just small fiber neuropathy, what do you see on nerve conduction studies? <laughs> nothing. Nothing. Yeah, nothing. Trick question. It's a trick question. Yeah. Well, you see something. Nothing is something. Yeah, right? yeah, That's true. important information. Yeah. Yeah. So if someone has really bad uh, pain and temperature loss and paraseizures and bad pain and bad autonomic dysfunction, but like a plumb normal nerve conduction study... They have pure small fiber involvement. Mm. Um, and there's not that many things that can do that, to be honest. Um, often you get small fiber involvement along with large fiber. So that's like classically what nerve um, diabetes might do. Like someone who's got bad diabetic neuropathy will have bad small fiber symptoms, but it will also affect their larger nerves. So you'll see something in nerve conduction studies. Um, and so if you do see changes in nerve conduction study, you know that large fibers are affected. Yep. There you go. Uh, so the second question is it demyelinating or is it axonal? Um, so that is, that really helps you understand what the underlying process driving the polyneuropathy is. Yeah. So take it back a step. So your your, your nerve is like a is like a wire. It has insulation and it has some wiring in in the middle. So your insulation is your myelin, um, and that helps the signal propagate. Um, and then uh, the signal itself is it travels in the in the axon in the wiring in the middle. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah, um, and so you can have a problem with the insulation demyelination, mm. or you can have a problem with the wiring, which is axonal. Yeah, yeah. And, and a nerve conduction study can tell you that yeah. which one it is. And you can have an often have both, but mm. usually you can tell whether it's primarily um, demyelinating or axonal. Um, so a demyelinate. So this is often the weed. So you see this in the report. They'll say it's demyelinating or axonal, and that's all you need to know if you're not going to become a neurology registrar. But if you're interested, you should be. <laughs> this is fascinating. Would you want a world full of neurologists? Uh, I'd love a world where like everyone had like much much better understanding understanding of, of neurology. not even just for what purpose? Would you want everyone to just know a lot more about like peripheral neuropathy? Well, Would just that for make their you own happy? purpose. 
because it's fascinating. Do you think that would benefit a lot of people if everyone knew like a definitely a, like yeah. neurophobia is such a thing, and like it would be such a good thing for patients. I'm not even talking about that. I'm like if patients all knew about peripheral neuropathy, you reckon this world would be better? Oh, for sure. Yeah. yeah. Right. Maybe we need to start an education campaign. Should <laughs> <laughs> be priority number one for the Australian government. Forget the bushfires. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not saying the bushfires would have been averted if everyone knew a little bit more about peripheral neuropathy but that's possible but (laughs) we don't know what that world looks like (laughs) anyway so in the weeds what are the different signs of demyelinating and axonal or nerve conduction studies Um, so as we said the myelin is the insulation that propagates a signal so you can imagine that uh, if you've lost that myelin um, the signal is really slow so you get very slow velocities um on, uh, on nerve conduction studies if the myelin has been stripped off. So we call it the myelinating range uh, velocity. I believe we've returned to the jungle at some point <laughs> in time. Unexpected return. <laughs> um, and the other thing you see, you might see is conduction blocks where the signal just doesn't go through. And you see that with a um, uh, demyelination rather than a, rather than axonal. Hmm. But unless you want to become a neurology registrar all you need Don't, to know is read the report does yeah. it say demyelinating or axonal exactly let, so, yeah. them, let them sit in a room and pontificate pontificate is that the right word I use that in the wrong sense I think no no that's fine that's I'm going to redefine it <laughs> so to arise so at this point you figured out which clinical pattern it, it fits into you figured out that it's large fibre or small fibre or both um, and you've also figured out whether it's demyelinating or axonal. And that's a lot of information. You've got really far if you've got that. If, like if, yeah. if one day I get an ED internal resident who tells me like which pattern and which, like, oh, I'll just fall off my chair. <laughs> <laughs> you would be out of a job, mate. Uh, no, definitely not. Because <laughs> it, it gets deeper. But it'll make my job a lot more fun. Um, so, yeah, you could, I, could, I could think that's that's something that, you know, most doctors could potentially figure out. Mm. Um and so then, then your next question is, once you've localized it to that kind of precision, your question of what the actual pathology affecting at that level is much, much easier. And remember, all of this is being done. You might think this is just an unnecessary intellectual wank. And it is. I mean, you might be sitting there at home going, God, this Davor guy is the biggest wanker. And you're right. But the, the real question we're trying to answer here is we're trying to get to a diagnosis. Sometimes we forget that. And so the, all that information we have so far just etches us towards mm. a pattern that fits with mm-hmm. an underlying disease. Mm. Yeah, exactly. So you've got all that info. And then, and then there's a, if you've localized it, your list of potential causes at each of those levels is much, much shorter. Um, so coming to that next question of what is a lesion... We will talk about that briefly, but it's not really the focus of the podcast. But there's some other questions you should ask. Um, so time course is always going to help you in figure out what the specific pathology is. For example, something toxic or metabolic is much more gradual over years, mm. or something inflammatory is much more acute. Family history will help you figure out if there's a hereditary component. Um, you always got to ask about associated medical conditions and other symptoms, like what's your overall context. Like if they've got diabetes, that's almost certainly involved in some way. Or if they've got lots of rheumatological symptoms, that or that may be. Or a diagnosis of underlying cancer can be associated with perineoplastic yeah. problems. So what's the context? It's going to be yeah. quite yeah. Is this like is this someone that's just come out of the blue with this peripheral neuropathy, or what's the what's the background? That's mm. very key. Um, and then just same kind of thing, what medications they're on and it's substance abuse, like alcohol is a classic cause of peripheral neuropathy. So you've got to know all that kind of stuff. Um, so once you've asked those questions, then you can start thinking through systematically about what the different categories of uh, pathology are. So I realize that we just kind of went through history after going through the examination investigation there. 
but it is kind of i guess you do think about it a little bit in that way yeah like a lot of this will be happening in parallel mm, mm. Um, but i'm just pointing out that there are some extra questions you've got to ask mm. not just you know where where the f- loss of sensation mm. is or where the weakness is uh, but they're questions that are directed more at what is the lesion. Mm, so they're pathology-directed questions, not so much uh, localization questions. questions. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then in the same way that you've got that daisy chain of the immune system, you've um, also got kind of some major categories that you can always think through systematically um, to think about what the potential pathology is. And like these are, these are classic lists to know when you're talking to a consultant or when you're presenting in, a, in an OSCE or a, or a, uh, a clinical exam. So I think here we're going to go through some categories, but it's always good to keep in mind sort of a Bayesian idea of what's most probable and then like what the sort of in the weeds causes are because most of the time it's going to be something simple like diabetes mm. or alcohol, like 90% mm-hmm. of the time that's mm-hmm. what it's going to be. Mm-hmm. So you should always just Having default said, to that and yeah. then work backwards from there about proving why it's not that. Although if you're going to use your Bayesian probability, if you're sitting in an OSCE, or a, or a big tick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. A, it depends on context. Chances yeah. of being a diabetes is like 1%. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's probably going to be something wacky. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so anyway, these are this is the category that, the categories that you should be able to reel off quickly in your head, both to, to, think, uh, to think about what's causing uh, the problem in the patient and, to like, and when you're presenting in, a, in an exam or an award round. So acquired... Um, so what are the important acquired causes that we so think, I think of? Big categories here are helpful. So, you know, you've got acquired and then underneath that you've got metabolic, which would include diabetes, mm. uremic problems, mm. uremia causes that, uh, thyroid problems. Uh, and then so metabolic, toxic, which would include... Alcohol is a classic cause. Mm. Um, nutritional, um, so B12, B12 is a classic cause. Um, so they're probably the most common, and, you, and as you go down the list, these are the less common categories. So immune uh, mediated. So that could be like Guillain-Barre, mm-hmm. or it could be other things, <laughs> <laughs> other diseases, other also yeah. uh, malignancy-related. Um, so there's lots of perineoplastic things that can cause peripheral neuropathies, and in, in its own separate category, because it's kind of half immune, half malignant, is amyloidosis. Mm. There's another thing to think about. Um, and then so those are all your acquired, acquired causes. And then it's always worth thinking that it can be hereditary, particularly if you're dealing with a young person with a family history. Shakomari tooth. No, that's a sign. Hmm? That's a sign. Shakomari tooth. Oh, you mean CMT. 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 Yeah. <laughs> Did I just out neurologist the neurologist? <laughs> He's going to take this all out in <laughs> God, I wish we had an editing process. <laughs> all right, so where is the lesion? What is the lesion? That's all the thinking you're going to do. Um, and so now we're going to take take out the Ferrari for a spin. <laughs> so case one. All right. Uh, so we've got a 70-year-old guy. He presents with loss of sensation in his hands and feet, but mostly his feet. Um, initially, uh, it was associated with a lot of pain at night, but that's now kind of gone away. Um, he's also getting really dizzy whenever he stands up. Um, and, and that's still going even though the GP cut out the perindopril. And this has happened slowly over three years. And also, he's got a 15-year history of type 2 diabetes, um, which he thought he could just outman and, uh, and ignore. It's worked so far. Yeah. <laughs> you examine him. Um, you're looking carefully at his feet, and you notice a bit of wasting of intrinsic muscles. There's no clinical weakness. You can't get ankle jerks, even with reinforcement bilaterally. And uh, when you test sensation, he's got a glove and stocking distribution 
of uh, loss of pain and temperature and proprioception. And when he walks, he's a little bit unsteady and he, he particularly has trouble with the kind of heel-to-toe uh, walking. So you don't need to think through this pattern thoroughly to like know what's going on, right? This is obviously what. I mean, it's obvious, really. This <laughs> is a diabetic neuropathy. This is a diabetic neuropathy. Um, so it's not it's not a case that you need to think through the daisy chain, think through all the different causes. Mm. But let's do that just for practice here. Um, so first of all, we know it's a polyneuropathy. Um, Why do we know that, Devil? We know it's not a central nervous problem because he doesn't have any upper motor neuron science, and and the and the pattern of sensation loss, you know, isn't hemisensory, and he doesn't have a sensory level. Yeah, so, so he doesn't have no, he doesn't have any. Um, he doesn't have hyperreflexia, doesn't mm. have increased tone, which yeah. would be upper motor neuron signs, and so there's no per- spinal cord sensation level or hemisensory loss. Yeah, so it's peripheral, it's not central. Um, there's lots of sensation involvement, so we know it's not muscle or neuromuscular junction, um, and kind of, it's got definitely got lots of nerves involved because they're both feet, for example, and both hands, so that's, that can't be one nerve. So we know we're dealing with a polyneuropathy. We've nailed that down. Good job. <laughs> And then uh, the next question is, what type of uh, polyneuropathy is it? Um, so which of those kind of four patterns that we talked about does so it fit? So the relevant things it? from the history were that it's the hands and the feet, particularly the feet. So mm. those are really long neurons getting all the way down to the feet. Glove and stocking. So mm. length-dependent neuropathy. <laughs> he's, he's not here to mess around, folks. And then you, <laughs> and you take them off to nerve conduction studies and you read the report and you see some changes. So you know it's not small, just small fiber. Although a lot of his symptoms are definitely small fiber. So mm. he must have some larger nerves involved as well. Um, so we know it's... Did we take him to a nerve conduction study? Yeah, I took him to a nerve conduction Like, why you weren't watching it? Oh, yeah, yeah, okay, good, yeah. So we look at the nerve conduction study report and it's not normal. So what does that tell you? So it tells you that there's going to be some large fiber involvement. So it's not just small fiber. He probably does have small fiber involvement because he's got a lot of small fiber symptoms like pain at night and the dizzy when he's standing up and the pain and temperature loss. But it's definitely not just that. Uh, so that's good to know. So it's large fiber and small fiber. So that's the second question you've answered. And the third question, you look and you scan in, you're like, ah, oh, exonal, demaya. Oh, it's exonal. So they've written exonal uh, on, the, on the report. So not demyelinating, exonal which mm. is the wiring of the nerve. Yes. <laughs> it is the wiring, as opposed to the insulation. Yeah. So now, I so, mean, so I guess you, the hard part is if that... If you're presenting to your consultant, you'd say this guy has got a length-dependent axonal neuropathy affecting small fiber and large fiber in the context of diabetes. It's probably diabetic neuropathy. Mm. Can you just put it to bed there? Should you do some more tests? Yeah, I think there's a couple more easy-to-rule-out things. Yeah, so you like you do, you know what it is, but it's probably worth testing for B12 because that's uh, often associated with metformin. So B12 deficiency, yeah. that is. Yeah. Yep. Um, and the other thing, any old guy that presents with neuropathy probably deserves the multiple myeloma screen. That's it's checking a, for amyloidosis. As a, well, it's like, checking for multiple myeloma. Well, yeah, <laughs> but the reason you're checking for multiple myeloma is... Uh, well, multiple myeloma itself it, can cause peripheral But that's much rarer, right, isn't it? The majority of them would be caused by the amyloidosis itself. Uh, I know, it? it's pretty common too. Really? Like if multiple myeloma itself can definitely cause a lot of peripheral neuropathy. Anyway, but, do the multiple myeloma <laughs> yeah. for whatever reason. All right, case two. Putting my flag down. Case two. All right, 45-year-old lady. She presents with numb feet. Breaks the fourth wall. But you are an astute doctor and you take a careful history and you figure out that it wasn't just both feet at the same time. It was actually her left foot first. 
Um, and this happened a few months ago. And then over a few weeks later, she noticed that her right foot was affected. And then a few weeks later, that the top of her thumb was affected. So definite asymmetry. Um, and she's noticed a bit of weakness in her feet as well. She feels like she's got a bit of a foot drop. Um, and this year, as I said, all happened over a matter of months. Past history is significant for rheumatoid arthritis. So then you examine it, um, and you do some very detailed power testing. When you're dealing with upper motor, uh, sort of lower motor neuron lesions or peripheral lesions, it's really important to test for power very carefully. It's not like a stroke where it's just like if they can lift up their arms, that's okay. Yeah, like, you, you need, I love stroke neurological <laughs> exams. It's 20 seconds. <laughs> you need to press, press very carefully and make sure you can't overpower them. And with that careful neurological exam, you figured out she's actually got some some subtle weakness uh, of dorsiflexion bilaterally, worse yeah. on the left than the right. Dorsiflexion in the ankles. Yeah, yeah. So it's uh, asymmetrical again. And then you... you Again, check for sensation carefully, and you again notice it's asymmetrical. It's worse on the left than the right. All right, so let's go through our thinking here. So what out of the four patterns is it? Is it length-dependent? Is it polyridicular? So is it length-dependent? Not no. really, because no. it's... Yeah, it's affecting her feet and her hands, but it's got this sort of affecting... Well, I mean, why isn't it length-dependent, Davo? Uh, because it's asymmetrical. Yeah. That's okay. the key thing. Yeah. We didn't talk about that. And there's, and there's quite a bit of motor involvement mm. for the amount of sensation loss. You wouldn't, if it was length-dependent neuropathy, you wouldn't expect to have dorsiflexion weakness. So it's it probably isn't fitting purely into a glove and stock. Though it's something to, so it could be length-dependent, but it's less likely now. Yeah. yeah. So then, is it multifocal uh, neuropathy? I think so. Yeah, because there's a very prominent asymmetry here. It does seem um, like that. Is it a polyradiculopathy? Well, it's not really affecting proximal stuff much. It's affecting the feet and the and right asymmetrical, thumb. Yeah. Asymmetrical, and then say, uh, neuronopathy. Remember that that's mostly sensory. Just sensation. So. Yeah. All right, so then you do your nerve conduction studies in EMG, um, and that shows multiple motor and sensory nerves involved, again in an asymmetric pattern, confirming that, and there's no features of demyelination. So it's abnormal, so you know it's large fiber, um, and it says axonal in the report, so it's axonal. So you've got a multifocal large fiber axonal polyneuropathy. So what's the most common cause of that in the setting of rheumatoid arthritis? Vasculitis. Vasculitis, yeah. I guess this last <clears throat> bit of coming up with the diagnosis, we haven't really taught you the full diagnostic list, but if you mm-hmm. can get to the pattern, that bit we're talking about... It really then, narrows down the list. Then yeah. you can just yeah. Google it even. Yeah. <laughs> you can always Google it. Yeah. That's a very important skill for doctors. <laughs> just Google Scholar, list the seven symptoms, and yeah. it's, it's, let's see if it comes up with something reasonable. <laughs> to like residents. That's yeah. <laughs> Uh, and just as a slight aside, so this is one of the last bastions of the, the nerve biopsy. We don't do very many of them anymore, but if you think it's vasculitis, we often do a biopsy to prove it. All right, case three. Um, 37-year-old gentleman presents with weakness. Uh, started in his lower limbs, but over a matter of days, um, started involving his upper limbs. He doesn't have much numbness, but there's a lot of paresthesias. Uh, there's no past history, but he, his um, kid brought home some diarrhea a week and a half ago, so he had some bad diarrhea. Uh, you examine him, and he's got symmetrical weakness, um, and it's uh, worse distally, but it's definitely involving his proximal muscles. He's kind of got four out of five hip flexion weakness. You can overpower him, which is very abnormal for a 37-year-old guy. Mm. Um, and he's got no reflexes at all. All his reflexes are gone. Um, and in terms of sensation testing, there's no... Is reporting paresthesias, but there's no real discrete sensation loss. Um, and then you do the nerve conduction studies, um, and the report says demyelination. 
Um, and because you're a nerd, you look a little bit further and you're like, oh, he's got a lot of slowing and he's got some conduction blocks. So, yeah, I agree. I guess, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to challenge the neurologist on this one. <laughs> All right. So where is the lesion? So it's a polyneuropathy. Mm-hmm. So it's affecting multiple areas. We heard it was affecting his lower limbs, now his upper limbs. Yeah. It seems to be... What pattern is it? Is affecting, it length-dependent? Mm, no, it seems to be quite proximal. It says uh, probably he had proximal weakness, so you know, he couldn't overpower his, uh, his legs. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't really fit with the length-dependent. Is it multifocal? It could be. It's affecting his lower limbs and it's upper limbs. pretty symmetric, though. Yeah. We'll keep that in mind as we move forward. Is it a neuronopathy? No, he hasn't got much sensation loss. Not that we could detect. And he's definitely got motor loss, so it's not a neuronopathy. Mm. Um, so it's probably a polyradiculoneuropathy. Um, so, it's so it's affecting the nerve roots. Proximal muscles proximal, affected. But also the nerves are affected, and we can see that on the nerve connection studies. And then looking at the nerve connection studies, they're abnormal, so it's not just small fiber, it's large fiber. And uh, it's um, demyelinating because the neurologist says so. So you've got a polyradiculoneuropathy that's large fiber and demyelinating that's evolved over a matter of days and was preceded by an infection. What's he got? Guillain-Barre syndrome. Yeah, probably Campylobacter di- diarrhea. Campylobacter is most associated with Guillain-Barre. All for right. all the pathogens. Last case. 30-year-old lady presents with severe ataxia. Ataxia is a unsteady gait. That's right. Um, and she reports some patchy numbness bilaterally. Um, and it's evolved kind of over months. She's gotten worse and worse. She's got no past history. Uh, you examine her. She's got no weakness, um, but also has no reflexes and severe sensory loss. Um, and it's particularly proprioceptive. Um, and uh, she's got such a severe proprioceptive loss that she's got something called pseudoathetosis. If you get her to um, close her eyes and hold her arms out, like she doesn't know where her hands are in space and they just start writhing around mm. um, by themselves. It's called pseudoathetosis. We had a patient with this recently and my concern was like, check it out, it's got exquisite pseudoathetosis. Exquisite. Exquisite, <laughs> exquisite pseudoathetosis. And I was like, oh yeah, that's right. Oh, that is exquisite. <laughs> Beautiful. He started licking his lips. <laughs> um, and then once you've got that history, you kind of double back a little bit and you find out she's had some other symptoms as well. And in particular, she's had a lot of sicker symptoms. What's that? Dry mouth, dry mm. mucosa, dry eyes. Mm. And it's often associated with autoimmune disease like Sjogren's syndrome mm-hmm. or potentially anything else as well. All right. So let's go through our system. So it's definitely polyneuropathy. Um, there's, it's not in a upper motor neuron pattern of sensory, oh, sorry, a, a central pattern of um, sensory loss. You know, there's no sensory level and it's not hemisensory. Um, so probably peripheral. Uh, it's definitely not motor or uh, muscle because there's a sensation involvement. Um, it's definitely not explainable by one lesion because there's lots of limbs involved. Um, so definitely dealing with a polyneuropathy. Is it length dependent? No. Is it polyradicular neuropathy? No, because it's just sensation. Is a mononeuritis multiplex? Uh, no, because there's no motor involvement. It is a little that bit. It doesn't necessarily have to have motor involvement, does it? Usually but it like, does. but Usually it's it does. A bit, yeah, it would yeah. be a bit unusual. Yeah. Um, and she's got pure sensory involvement and severe sensory involvement. It's mm. not like uh, pure sensory involvement, um, but not much. So it could it could just be that the motor's not involved yet. Um, like really severe, like she can't walk. Mm. So the sensory neuron is affected. And then they're one of the dumbest names in neurology, amongst <laughs> many dumbest names. It's a neuronopathy. Yeah. Not a neuropathy, neuronopathy. 
Neuro-neuropathy. Is a really neuro-neuropathy. Sensory <laughs> neuropathy. Um, and then you, so you think that already, then you do some nerve connection studies and, and EMG, and you see no involvement of the motor and complete loss of our sensory potentials. There's uh, no evidence of uh, demyelination, and you know it's large fiber because it's abnormal. So we've got a large fiber, uh, axonal uh, sensory neuropathy. And what's the cause? She's got all those sicker symptoms. I'm thinking something called Very autoimmune. common cause of neuropathy is Sjogren's syndrome. Um, and then you do the anti-Roe, anti-La, the Teletubby ones, and, um, and uh, yeah, it's positive. And you treat her and she gets better. All right. So we have come to an end. I think the key thing from that is that you're trying to get down to one of those patterns. Mm. You're not trying. We didn't talk much <clears throat> about the diagnoses that are associated with those patterns. But like we said before, you get there and then the rest is just the easy part. Yeah. And then you think through your list of hereditary, choir, toxic, metabolic, nutritional, mm. malignant, autoimmune, amyloid. If you come across something random in the wild, just go with diabetes until yeah. else <laughs> you comes don't know. Up. <laughs> you don't know. So yeah, I remember so, I covered the neuro reg job briefly, the consults job at Clayton when I was like very early on in my career. And I remember seeing all these patients who had weird weakness and that I just ordered a B12 and HbA1c for everyone. And that was enough to get by for a week. Like, the consultant was like, cool. Yeah, like a- <laughs> <laughs> He's coming with a stroke. Right. <laughs> 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 get that B12 done. <laughs> Urgently. Call up the lab. Length dependent neuropathy. <laughs> All right, so I find myself congratulating a lot of the audience after our podcast <laughs> yeah. for surviving. None of them have heard the congratulations yet. So, devastatingly, we didn't get the Golden Globes just went past. I mean, I think we were hot on the tail to be nominated. We weren't even invited. Yep. Yeah, surprisingly. <laughs> um, we should have just gone anyway and made an appearance yeah. on the red carpet. <laughs> Uh, yeah. What, were, what are your take home messages? What have you um, taken? You've made the correct I'd like choice. Like to go home. Yeah. I think the main thing is you should know the difference between, if you're early on, just being able to differentiate between a central or peripheral problem is really important. Um, and then you can kind of get to that later patterns, the patterns. <laughs> <laughs> The pattern. Uh, the <laughs> I don't know what the take home is there. Learn your neuroanatomy, I guess. All right. Figure out if it's central peripheral. Figure out if it's a polyneuropathy. And then there's four main clinical patterns of yeah. polyneuropathy. Um, and then you use a nerve connection study to localize it further. Mm. And then you think about your, your typical list of pathologies. And then you've got, bam, you've got a diagnosis. And yeah, then, no, you don't. You don't. Yeah, but yeah. You do, and then you <laughs> you've got a list of diagnoses that it still could potentially be after like two weeks of work. <laughs> that's what you come to. Uh, yeah. All right. Bye, everybody. <laughs> Happy New Year, I guess. <laughs>